Brian Barnett is just a regular guy. He's not a doctor. He has no legal license in any field of mental or emotional health. Brian Barnett merely shares the insights he's gained from his personal experiences for anybody who may choose to use such information as he or she personally chooses, while accepting full responsibility for his or her own individual thoughts, feelings, behaviors, and actions. Brian Barnett assumes no responsibility whatsoever for anybody's individual choice to expose himself or herself to any information that Brian Barnett shares. And by listening to this program, you're acknowledging that you, and only you, are responsible for your own thoughts, feelings, and actions. Happy Thursday, everybody. Welcome back to The Last Symptom. I'm Brian Barnett, the creator and host. I'm so glad that you could be here with me today, even though it's not actually Thursday. It's actually Friday. I did not get the this episode of the podcast out yesterday, and I apologize for that. I appreciate your patience. Now listen, I know that there are so many things you could be doing or listening to. There's literally no end to the number of programs, podcasts, radio shows, TV shows, movies, music, and other things to consume out there. But every week, thousands of you choose this program. So I'm very grateful and I'm heartfelt when I say I'm glad you're here. What are we going to talk about today that relates to emotional disorder and of authentically ridding yourself of them? We're going to discuss when the answer is nothing. As you might know, this is a topic that I've been wanting to discuss with you for a long time now. And, well, the timing is right. Before we get into that discussion, let me tell you about TheLastSymptom.com. This is my website full of growing free resources. I do hope you'll take full advantage of them. The site does also offer some paid services, which is what enables me to do this work at all. If you'd like to schedule a one-on-one conversation with me, you can do that right from thelastsymptom.com. Maybe I can help you pinpoint exactly where your thinking is off and what's preventing you from making greater progress in your personal efforts. Or maybe I can just answer some of the questions you might be walking around with. Of course, if you appreciate the work I'm doing, you find yourself benefiting from it, and you'd like to support my work so that others will have the opportunity to benefit as well, thelastsymptom.com offers you the ability to leave me a donation if you're so inclined. But is this the only way you can support my efforts? Let me read to you a review I noticed this week on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, as it's also called. This is a real review that somebody took time out of their life to write for all the world to see. On iTunes or Apple Podcasts, the review goes like this. One star out of five. Uncured, narcissist, dumbass. Ouch. I hope he or she listens to season two, episode 37. 
which is all about those who accuse me of being a narcissist and a liar. But even if he or she does, do you think his or her opinion will change? No, I don't believe so either, because their opinion is based on emotion. If you really are benefiting from my work, something relatively easy that you can do to support it so that others will also benefit is to negate these sorts of bitter, angry reviews with your own positive reviews. Of course, I only want you to write a positive review if it's sincere. I'm not asking you to say anything you don't really mean. I realize it can be a hassle to interrupt your day to take the time to write a review for something like iTunes or Apple Podcasts, but believe me, it is extremely appreciated and it is tremendously helpful in allowing other people to discover the content. You know, think about when you're looking for information about something and you're browsing through the millions of possibilities. The, f- the first few reviews tell you a lot about whether that's the book or the podcast or the video or the whatever for you, doesn't it? I know it's true for me. Even apps, you know, if I'm shopping for a particular app for a particular purpose, there's no end to the options, right? <laughs> How do I decide which one is for me? Well, I look at what other people are saying, typically, and if I see a few negative reviews, that's enough sometimes to scare me away from that app. I'll keep going, and I'll keep looking. So please, take the time to leave a review on iTunes, on Spotify, or wherever you listen to the show, and I thank you. Alrighty, enough about that. Let's talk for a minute about YouTube. As you know, just a few weeks ago, I was celebrating the fact that I had crossed the 500 subscriber mark. Well, now we're inching very close to crossing the 600 subscriber mark. I'm very pleased about that. So I want to thank everybody for supporting the channel. Now here's the bad news. YouTube, for some reason, has locked up my channel. They are not allowing any of my new content to be accessible by the public. This began last week with episode 37, when my guest was Sonia, a Muslim friend of mine in Sweden. That show was packed full of beneficial insights, by the way. If you haven't heard it, be sure to. Now, I assumed that YouTube had taken action against my channel because of the Muslim topic which really was not the focus of our discussion overall, but was included in the discussion. But after trying several different things, it's now clear to me that YouTube has singled out the last symptom for reasons other than our discussion about Muslims and Islam, because they're not allowing any of my new content to be accessible by the public. Could it be because much of my work highlights the failures and misinformation of the professional community? It could be. I have no way of knowing. YouTube has done this without affording me so much as a single word of communication. But whatever their reasons are, I consider it despicable. 
This is something I'm not very happy about as a person born and raised in a country that views free speech as one of its most fundamentally important founding principles. Also, you have to understand that the professional community as a group is complicit in obstructing people from ever recovering from these emotional disorders in an authentic way. The information they provide or fail to provide their clients is deeply flawed. Just take the fact, for example, that they have the world believing and parroting that everything is a mental illness. Sure, because the way they say it, everything is a mental health issue, right? When what they're really talking about is emotional health. They can't even get that right. They can't even understand insightfully why this distinction is imperative and why using these false terms is harmful to those actually trying to rid themselves of these emotional disorders. No, as a group, they can't understand, apparently, that making people think that their brains are malfunctioning when they're not sets people off on an erroneous journey of misdirection from the very beginning of their recovery efforts. So, thanks to the professional community, the people suffering from these emotional disorders don't even accurately understand the nature of the thing they're really dealing with, thanks to these clowns. So how are they ever going to authentically recover from something they misunderstand the very nature of, thanks to the people who are held up in society as being the ones to provide them with accurate insights and information. Just minutes ago, I got somebody wanting to join my education group. Do you know what the reason was that this person stated for wanting to join my group? The person wrote this, to learn coping skills. Do you know what that implies and where this person learned that term? Well, the person learned it from the professional community, and it implies that emotional disorders are unfixable, so it's something you can expect to live with for the rest of your life, that you should not think of it as something you can ever be rid of entirely, and that the best, the very best you can ever hope for is to learn coping skills. Now, folks, I didn't invent that term, and I reject it. Do you know who did invent that term? The professional community. Do you know who continues to use that term and to promote that term as the big solution for their clients? The professional community. Which means that the professional community is actively encouraging their clients to view their emotional disorders as not only a mental illness, that is, something they have no control over because there's not a lot you can do about a malfunctioning brain, is there? But also that they should view the solution as simply learning to live forever 
with the emotional disorder rather than just fix the underlying problem completely. So there is simply no question whatsoever that the professional community as a group is not perpetuating positive, constructive, healthy approaches to real solutions, but that as a group they are instead promoting actively destructive falsehoods and they have no insight whatsoever to understand why these things are destructive or to understand why these things are false. Now, of course, I make it a point to explicitly say all the time that it is the professional community as a group who is creating this mess. But have I ever told anybody not to get a therapist? (laughs) Anybody who's ever listened to this show for any length of time knows that that's not the case. Have I ever told anybody that all therapists and psychologists are bad? No, I have not. In fact, just two episodes ago, I told everybody that they need to be seeing a therapist if their circumstances meet a certain criteria. I myself have a few extraordinarily insightful psychologists to thank for setting me down the path of my own recovery. My purpose for pointing out the failures of the professional community as a group is to protect you from trusting in them blindly just because of the position of authority that they enjoy that works in their favor to make people blindly believe and parrot everything they say. Also, I warn people about the reality of the professional community as a group so that when they are looking for a therapist or a psychologist, they do so discerningly. They don't just settle for any of them just because a person is a psychologist or just because a person is a therapist. That's not good enough. So what I encourage people to do is to shop around for the person who demonstrates genuine insight, places an importance on the accuracy of the terms they choose to use. So, if YouTube is lumping me into a category with Alex Jones or the Flat Earth Society, I find this unbelievably offensive. I reject that. But what can I do about it? Why am I telling you all this? Well, I'm telling you this so that you know that currently you apparently will not be able to hear any of my new content if YouTube is your preferred method of listening to this show. And you know, something that really stinks is that I have no way of making an announcement on YouTube to let my subscribers know this. Also, don't stop subscribing to the Last Symptom YouTube channel. In fact, keep subscribing to it for now. But know that for now at least, you'll have to choose any other podcast platform as your method of hearing new content, iTunes, our Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Radio.net, literally any other major podcast platform should have The Last Symptom Podcast if you look for it. Finally, thank goodness YouTube only makes up the smallest number of my listeners. Thousands of you out there. Listen to the show on other platforms. You're listening to it right now on other platforms. And I'm happy for that. 
If you have any ideas about how I can reach out to YouTube and possibly get this issue with them resolved, please let me know. Better yet, if you work for YouTube and can press a button and fix it, please do. In the meantime, I will hope for the total collapse of YouTube (laughs) and that people flee that platform in droves until they begin to understand how harmful their censorship is. I don't care if they're doing it with good intentions. It's wrong. Quora is another platform that I despise. Any critic can literally complain about anything I write, and they delete content that I spent hours writing based on nothing. Based on nothing. I only ever write for Quora on an extremely limited basis anymore. If this is the same approach I ultimately have to take with YouTube, so be it. Now, let's move on to today's main topic, when the answer is nothing. What do you think I'm getting at with this title, when the answer is nothing? Well, we've discussed in detail in the past about how feelings are never good or bad, right or wrong. And we've also discussed how when we talk about the objective of authentic recovery, the objective is not to feel happy all the time. We've also discussed how our feelings are not the problem. Now, many people have real trouble understanding this, that your feelings are not the problem. Because from their perspective, they think that they feel things more intensely or differently than normal people do. Normal, I say, you know, quote, unquote. More intensely or differently than quote, unquote, normal people do. Or that their feelings are always getting out of control and getting them into problems. Do you see how these people's perspectives about the very nature of their feelings and and what it is they're trying to do here in recovery is incorrect? Literally anybody perceiving situations and experiences with the same perceptions as you do would feel the exact same things in the exact same intensities that you do. So their feelings are not malfunctioning. They simply have erroneous perspectives. They're viewing these experiences with an incorrect narrative, which naturally gives birth to the precisely appropriate feelings for what they think they are observing or experiencing, but probably not really experiencing or observing. It's just their interpretation of the thing or the filter that they're observing it through. Your feelings are truly not what we are here to fix because there's nothing wrong with your feelings. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with how you feel things. When a person has an emotional disorder, this doesn't mean that your emotions are malfunctioning. They're not. In most cases, it's simply your perspectives that need to be corrected. If you correct the underlying perspectives that you're operating on, your feelings naturally change as a natural result. For example, if I believe a person is making fun of me 
Maybe I feel resentment and anger, right? But what happens when I find out that he's actually making fun of himself? And I only thought he was making fun of me. Do I continue feeling resentment and anger? No, because my perspective of the situation has changed. I've realized that the perspective I was operating with before was incorrect. Now, have I had to change what I felt? No, that happened by itself, didn't it? Was what I felt wrong? No, because the things we feel are based on our perspectives. Our perspectives can be wrong. How we feel about what we perceive cannot be classified as wrong. Therefore, the thing to fix is not the feeling. We couldn't even if we wanted to anyway. The thing to fix is the perspective. You fix the perspective and the feelings adjust accordingly, naturally, by themselves. We don't have to change the feeling. Don't have to do anything with the feeling. The feeling adjusts with the perspective. But what happens in cases where our feelings are not simply a matter of perspective, but indeed a reality that we are enduring? For example, in my case, there are things I would really like for my father to do that he will probably never do. There are real injustices that I suffered directly from him that can never be undone. There are real losses and regrets that I have suffered that will never be undone. There are real injustices that I myself have committed against people I personally care for deeply that I'll never be able to take back. What is the answer in all of these cases like this? The answer is nothing. Remember, feeling something negative, sad, or heartbreaking is not a problem. Not when it's just the reality of what we're dealing with. And remember, feelings aren't good or bad, right or wrong anyway. And attaining emotional health is not a matter of changing everything we feel or never feeling anything negative, sad, or tragic, or turning our negative, sad, tragic feelings into apathy or making them disappear altogether. No. Ask yourself, do I truly understand this? You know, I'm not trying to talk down anybody. This is something I'd really like you to ask yourself and to think about. Do I truly understand that my objective, the striving to rid myself of emotional disorder and acquire authentic emotional health is not a matter of fixing every single sad or gloomy thing that I might be feeling right now? Now, I say that the answer in these cases is nothing. And what I mean by that is that allowing yourself to feel what you're already feeling is the answer there may be nothing else to do. We have no control over anybody else, do we? So we can't obligate anybody to be or do what we want them to do or be in order for our feelings to change. 
So often, what's the answer? Well, besides taking action and making decisions for ourselves, the answer is often nothing. You allow yourself to feel how you feel about the situation. There's nothing else to do. If you're already applying boundaries, conditions, and consequences correctly and healthfully, there's nothing else to do except to allow yourself to feel what you feel. And it may be the exact, precise, appropriate thing to feel. The other person does not have to be what we want him or her to be. The only power or control you have in the situation is to make healthy decisions for yourself, which, if they're truly healthy decisions, will often involve limiting that person's influence in your life or excluding it altogether. But as far as making the other person be different, only they can make that happen. Now, you can feel about it any way you do, and that's about it. Otherwise, the answer is nothing. Think about this, though. When I describe the situation where the answer is nothing, is the answer really nothing? No, not really. The healthy person in this situation is, in fact, doing something. What are we doing when we recognize that the answer sometimes is nothing? Acceptance. Yes, it's an example of acceptance. Remember how acceptance works. There's no judgment to it at all. Acceptance isn't agreeing with a thing. And it's not necessarily liking a thing. It's merely being able to look at something and seeing it for what it really is without our feelings being able to reinterpret it or redefine it or soften it in any way. So, for example, if I look at my dog, Bradbury, and I recognize the telltale signs of old age, I may think to myself, my dear friend has grown old. He probably only has five or six more years with me at a max before he dies. Is there any judgment to this? No, there's no judgment to it at all. I'm simply accepting what I truly see in front of me and the reality that dogs only live a certain amount of time. Now imagine that I see his gray muzzle and I notice that he's moving around a bit slower. I remember that he's 10 years old this year. But because it's painful for me to imagine life without my dog, I push aside any recognition of the reality, and I instead choose to go on believing that he's not growing old that, and that he'll be around forever. What just happened in that case? Denial. What is the opposite of acceptance? Denial. What is denial? Denial is any time we allow our feelings to reinterpret, redefine, or blind us to some reality. And why? Because the feelings caused by the reality of what we're seeing or experiencing is unpleasant. And we don't want to feel unpleasant. So we lie to ourselves. We lie to ourselves so that we feel better. 
In a way, denial is unbelievably weak, and I can't imagine anybody voluntarily choosing to embrace denial or live like a slave to it. But do you know what? Millions of people do. Denial, by the way, works hand-in-hand with cognitive dissonance. Do you know what cognitive dissonance is? It's when you've given denial such a powerful grip over yourself that you are literally blind to what's right in front of you. You reject it. You can look at something that clearly, clearly contradicts the beliefs you cling to, and yet you come up with wild and extreme narratives that don't make any rational sense whatsoever, just so you don't have to readjust what you believe to the reality. And the way this gets started typically is that a person allows their feelings to determine what they believe. Did, did you catch that? They, a person allows their feelings to determine what they believe. Uh, that's not the way life is supposed to work. We're supposed to allow our intellect, our observational powers, to determine what we believe and then feel whatever we feel about that. But typically, cognitive distance and, de- and denial happens by people allowing their feelings to determine what they believe. And then what they do is they work in reverse. They work backwards to now build a case for why their feelings can't be wrong about this. You see, now their feelings have said, I feel this way about this thing. So now they begin building a case for why their feelings can't be wrong about this. Why I dislike this thing or why I love this thing. Do you understand what I'm saying? You see, most people believe they arrive at conclusions about a thing only after they've been exposed to a number of compelling reasons to reach that conclusion. But this is not how most people arrive at conclusions. Most people first have an emotional reaction, and then they go searching for information to support their feelings. So, for example... Maybe I see a musician on the TV. Immediately, I experience some feelings toward this person based on my initial perspectives. Let's say that the feelings I experience toward the musician are negative. Now, keep in mind, I have no rational reason whatsoever at this point to dislike this person, but for some reason, I do. Maybe I don't like his or her music. Maybe I don't like the way they dress, whatever it is. I've felt something negative toward him or her. Now, moving forward, I'm primed to look for confirmation that I really do have reasons to dislike this person and that my feelings about him or her are not wrong. Incidentally, this is called confirmation bias because I'm subconsciously searching for only things to confirm my bias. Anything that does not confirm my bias, I overlook as unimportant. I just conveniently fail to factor that information in because it doesn't confirm, you see, what I already feel. But back to cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance, cognitive dissonance is what happens when 
somebody shows me a thousand reasons why this musician is a fantastic human being who's done a thousand good things for humanity, that the musician lives a humble life, and that none of the negative things I believe about him are even remotely true, but because I'm unwilling to accept any information that contradicts my feelings, what I do is come up with wild explanations for every single one of these thousand things that contradict what I already want to believe. So a person might say, see, Brian, the musician is not a racist. In, in fact, his daughter is black. And I might reply, oh, yeah, that's convenient for the image this low life is trying to create. Knowing him, he only accepts his daughter as his own so he can win over the public and sell more records. And the person might say, well, he, he donated a million dollars last year to orphanages. Yeah, well, he has millions. The guy has millions of dollars. A million dollars for him is nothing. He only donated that money to distract people from the fact that he's a racist. And on and on and on. It's an unbelievable thing to witness. And the explanations get crazier and further and further out there every time. A person will literally create the most fantastical explanation that you've ever heard, and they will really believe it. They will really believe that this proves that their feelings are right, that their conclusions about this person are right based on what they feel, and because of what they feel, this is the narrative they've created to completely discredit the new information that they're receiving that indicates the exact opposite of what they want to believe. So what is the cure to denial, confirmation bias, and cognitive dissonance? What is the, the magic ingredient that negates these things? Acceptance. That's right, acceptance. Now, the professional community, as a group, has come up with a really idiotic, stupid word for this. Maybe you've heard it. They call it radical acceptance. So now think about this for a second. According to them, you've got regular acceptance, but then you've also got this thing called radical acceptance. It total bullshit. The reality is that there are not different types of acceptance. You either accept a thing or you don't. And if you don't, that's denial. Do you understand that there's no such thing as half acceptance? Do you understand that? If you don't, spend some more time thinking about it. Half acceptance or partial acceptance is just denial. It's not half acceptance. It's not partial acceptance. It's simply denial. There's acceptance and there's denial. There's no gray area in between. If you don't accept something fully as it truly is, then you just don't accept it. You're just simply in denial. Any lack of acceptance at all is simply denial. And what is acceptance again? It's being able to look at a thing right in the face with our eyes wide open 
and not allow our feelings to alter, redefine, reinterpret, or blind us to it in any way. So I look at a bird and I say, that bird is dead. There's no judgment to my acceptance of that reality whatsoever. I'm simply not allowing my feelings that wish the bird were not dead to reinterpret or blind me to what the reality just simply is. There's nothing radical about this ability at all. In fact, anything less than this is simply denial. And denial is extremely emotionally unhealthy. Now, often when I'm talking about acceptance and denial, I like to point out to people that healthy people experience denial all the time. Do you know in what circumstance? Mourning. So let's say that uh, you've lost somebody that you love to death. What is mourning? Mourning is a form of denial. Your feelings are saying, no, I don't want this to be true. This can't be true. Do you see? This can't be true. That's what the feelings are saying. So mourning, which is normal and healthy, is a form of denial. But it wouldn't be healthy for a person to perpetually stay in mourning for the rest of their life, would it? What happens when a person emerges from mourning? What happens is acceptance. This is why people are able to, after the death of somebody they care greatly for, who's very important in their life, they're still able, after a period of mourning or denial, they're able to reach acceptance. And again, remember, acceptance is not the same as agreeing with a thing or even liking a thing. It's merely the ability to not allow our feelings to blind us to a reality or to redefine or reinterpret reality. So all during the mourning process, a person, their feelings are saying, no, no, this can't be, I, re I reject this. I reject this reality. When their mourning ends, their feelings have accepted the new reality. Interesting, isn't it? Now, when I look at my father and I say, my father emotionally abused me when I was a child, therefore he was a child abuser. There's no judgment to this. You may think, you may hear when I say that, you may hear in your head that I'm attacking my father or that I'm saying that I hate him or I'm expressing some type of anger or disappointment with him. No, that's not what I said. When I say my father abused me as a child, therefore he's a child abuser, I'm stating the simple reality with no judgment attached to it at all. Any judgment that you're hearing, you're putting in there. The truth is, I love my father. I don't want anything bad to happen to him. I'm, I don't walk around angry at him. I have regrets and I have some disappointments. But there's no judgment to me just calling a duck a duck, right? There's no judgment to you looking at a duck and calling it a duck. There's no judgment included with it at all. 
the judgment part of it is imaginary. It's not real. If I look at a car across the street and I say, look, there's a blue car, my ability to just describe plainly and truthfully what what I see, what is there, what is really there, there's no judgment to that. Any judgment that you hear in that is imaginary. It's not real. Notice that I don't say my father was a child abuser and what a wicked person he is. I don't say my father was a child abuser and I hate his guts. I don't say my father is a child, is, was a child abuser and I want the worst things possible to happen to him. No, you're, you're imagining all that. Acceptance doesn't involve judgment at all. It's simply me looking at the situation and saying, my father emotionally abused me as a child. That makes him a child abuser. I'm simply accepting the reality of the thing and allowing myself to call it what it really is. I don't allow my uncomfortable feelings toward this reality or the uncomfortable feelings of quote-unquote betraying somebody I love by stating just a plain truth to reinterpret the reality. If I did, that would be denial. Acceptance allows me to see something for what it really is despite however I feel about it. Despite whatever type of aversion I have to that reality. You understand that despite whatever aversions you have to reality, the only healthy way to live is to see the reality anyway? To be able, despite your aversions to the reality, to see the reality anyway? What is the end result of a lot of acceptance? In other words, in a lot of cases where we achieve genuine acceptance about a thing that, remember, we don't necessarily agree with, we don't necessarily like it, but we accept that that's the reality. It just is what it is. What is the end result of this in many cases? Well, the end result in many cases is disappointment and regret. So it's not a small thing to bear in mind that the end goal of our striving toward genuine emotional health is not that we feel happy all of the time or that we quote-unquote fix every unpleasant feeling bothering us. Since we're dealing with other people and realities that are out of our control and each of these people that might or might not be involved in the particular circumstances that we're dealing with, each of them, each have the same individual inherent rights, responsibility, and authority that we and all adult free agents get to enjoy. And because this is true, our authentic inner contentment cannot be dependent on other people being what we wish them to be or them choosing to do all the things that we wish they would do. It can't be dependent on circumstances that we have absolutely no power, authority, or control over. 
If these things were what our inner contentment and emotional health depended on, believe me, not a single one of us would ever be healthy. That is the thing you want to write down and think about from this episode. Let me say it again. Since we're dealing with other people, each of them with the same individual inherent rights, responsibility, and authority that we and all adult free agents get to enjoy, our authentic inner contentment cannot be dependent on other people being what we wish them to be or other people choosing to do all the things that we wish they would do. If this were what our inner contentment and emotional health depended on, not a single person would ever be healthy. True inner contentment can only happen if it is not dependent, not dependent on what other people choose to be or do or say. This includes our parents. True inner peace and contentment comes from within us. And the secret to getting there is acceptance. Acceptance, the ability to look at a thing, such as a relationship with somebody we desperately crave something from, but will never get, and accepting that reality. When we finally surrender, now listen to this. This is just like the person who is now emerging from their period of mourning and is now able to look forward in their life and truly enjoy life and truly be content with life. When we finally surrender, when we finally let go and accept that the disappointment is just a reality and it is not something that we have any power over or that will probably ever change, it allows us to surrender. That surrender is acceptance. We surrender. We accept the reality of what the other person is truly and what he or she is not truly, no matter how we feel about it. This surrender allows us to move on with our lives rather than to be rooted in the past. It allows us to recognize that our life is a bubble and we have full authority and power over everything within that bubble and nothing outside of that bubble. And we have full authority and power to make the reality within that bubble what we want it to be, but only within that bubble. You see, we stop waiting for the reality we want to exist within that bubble to depend on some external person or influence. Folly, folly to think that the reality of your bubble is dependent on somebody else or something else external. But most of all, acceptance allows us to recognize that sometimes, many times, disappointment and regret are the precisely appropriate feelings for us to feel that we've been feeling the right thing all along, that we may live forever with these feelings in regard to the specific circumstances creating them, and that this is totally okay. The answer is nothing. The answer is to just accept that we're going to be living with these feelings. 
because the conditions creating the feelings, the conditions creating us to feel these feelings are in the control of somebody else or something else that may never change. And we're allowed to feel how we feel about that. I personally live with great disappointment and regret, and yet I am still enjoying genuine underlying contentment. Why? How? Acceptance. The acceptance of whatever the reality is. The acceptance of what I cannot change. The acceptance of what I can and must change. The acceptance that only I can do that. The acceptance of where my inherent rights, responsibility, and authority begin and where they end. The acceptance that whatever I feel is perfectly appropriate. The acceptance that there's nothing wrong with feeling however I feel. The acceptance that nobody else on the face of the earth has to understand any of this. Only I do. Ladies and gentlemen, I appreciate your patience with me while I ironed out this show and got it out to you this week. I apologize for the one-day delay. I hope that you find many gems in it and uh, that you are able to listen to this episode over and over again and uh, extract more juicy bits from it each time. I hope all of you have a wonderful week. Let me remind you one last time of thelastsymptom.com. Of course, take advantage of the free resources that I offer there, but also if you'd like to support my work with a donation, that would be uh, greatly appreciated. And also, as I mentioned earlier in this program, if you'd like to support my work in other ways, please do so by leaving a positive review, if it's an honest review. And with that, this is Brian Barnett signing off. I'll see you next week. Same place, same time, I hope. (laughs) 